So the laundry got done. It's about time. It's about time. And the Bomba socks came out, and they came out just fine. I put them back on. They felt just as comfortable as the first time. Exactly the same. Yeah, they're a quality sock. They're designed to be better than any other sock. And, uh, you know, we didn't have the same problem we always have when we're trying to match up a bunch of dull white socks. Mm -hmm. They've got little pops of color on them that help you match them up. Yeah, yeah. My favorite are the ones that I have that are orange. Yeah. Yeah, they're actually not orange. I like to say they're like pumpkin spice latte color. I don't want to think about pumpkin spice on your feet. (laughs) (laughs) No, but I like thinking about Bombas socks on my feet. They're more comfortable. They're quality made and a better fitting sock than anything else that you will find on the market. And they stay up. They do not sag and fall down. They stay exactly in place where they're supposed to be. The best part of Bombas is that with every purchase of a pair of Bombas socks, Bombas will donate a pair to someone in need. And if you try the socks and don't like them, Bombas will let you send them back. They'll refund your money, no questions asked. They won't ask a question? They won't ask a single question. Did you have two left feet? (laughs) Did you not like the pumpkin spice? Yeah. (laughs) So go to bombas.com slash crime for 20% off your first order. That's Bombas, B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash crime. Bombas, be better. Be better. There's a little B on the socks. Have you noticed that? I have, yes, but it's only spelled with one E. (laughs) Yeah, I'm saying be better. And another thing that you can do to support the podcast, I can't say it'll make you better, but it'll certainly improve your day, is mm-hmm. subscribe to our newsletter. It's really fun. It gives you a heads up on what's happening on the next episode of the podcast, as well as what's going on behind the scenes. And you can get that done. It's super easy to do at crimewriterson.com. And when you're at the website, use our Amazon link. Just click on it and it takes you to Amazon. You can do all your shopping there and a little portion of your purchase ends up going to support our podcast. And we also have links to Amazon UK and Amazon Canada. And we don't have Amazon Australia. I wish we did. But hey, you know, Australia people, we might actually be on TV in Australia very soon. We're trying to work it out. The time difference is a little challenging, but who knows? We could have some Australian TV news soon. We'll see. Yeah, it'd be kind of neat. And thanks so much to all the listeners who have been using our Amazon.com link at CrimeWritersOn.com. Have they been using it? They have. To buy stuff. Prove it. Prove it. We can prove it right now because here's our very own Toby Ball reading just a few of the items our listeners have purchased this week using that Amazon link at Crime. CrimeWritersOn.com. Kevin, roll it. I don't have any buttons to roll it. <laughs> you have all the buttons. All right. I'm just going to fade you down right now. You just... Nag, Champa, Sunrise, Sandalwood, Midnight, Patchouli, Celestial Fortune, Blessings, Romance, Super Hit, Jasmine, Blossom Rain, Forest, by Sacha, Gift Set. Assets, Red Hot Label by Spanx, Sleek Slimmers Medium Control Slip. Vinyl Decal Adhesive Sticker, Ampersand Hash X25CF, Warning Pet Alert Inside In Case of Fire Safety, Ampersand Hash X25CF, Dog, cat, bird, reptile, firefighter, rescue, ampersand, hash, X25CF, emerge. Honey Badger, don't give a shit t-shirt. Funny parody shirt. Male, large. Asphalt. Frida Baby, nasal aspirator with 20 additional hygiene filters.
I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is Crime Writers On, the podcast about a podcast and also about journalism, pop culture, true crime, and occasionally other podcasts. Today, we'll be talking about another true crime podcast that's got lots of people talking. Does someone know something? Well, we'll find out if any one of us does. We'll also be answering some of your questions, and joining me now to do all of that is my true crime co-author and real-life husband, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Hey, Rebecca. Got to get back to the laundry, so let's make this quick. And on the line with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, and licensed private investigator, Laura Bricker. Welcome back, Laura. Thank you. Hey, Brixie. <laughs> hey, Flynn. And also with us is our favorite basketball and negativity enthusiast, crime and noir fiction writer, Toby Ball. Welcome back, Toby. I, I think I might be the first negativity enthusiast. <laughs> Toby, what do you think of Kobe? I can't. It was incredible. He took 50 shots. What about Steph Curry? Forget Kobe. Steph Curry. Curry's ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, he's seriously like he's willing to shoot from places where nobody else even thinks about it. It was a great week in basketball. And I was thinking about you this week. Did you enjoy it? I did. It's just about to get better because the NBA playoffs are about to start. The Onion had a great headline, which was like Jack Nicholson wishes his new girlfriend was old enough to remember Kobe in his prime. <laughs> <laughs> Is that true? No, it's, it's the oh. Onion. <laughs> OK, could somebody tweet the Onion at Toby? Well, I want to start the show by making a correction. Last week, I I said that I hoped for a People versus O.J. Simpson style show on the Jean Benet Ramsey case. And one of the reasons I said it would work was because I said, and I quote, her parents are dead, which turns out is only half true. I did not check that before I said it. Patsy and you Ramsey, just thought nobody would notice that. No, I actually, I don't know why I thought that, but I did. I really thought it. And uh-huh. I, I wouldn't have said it if I didn't think uh-huh. it was true. But it isn't only half true, as it turns out. Patsy Ramsey, John Benet Ramsey's mother, did pass away from cancer in 2006. But John Ramsey, John Benet Ramsey's father, is alive and well. And while I don't think he listens to our show. I think you I, just unsubscribe. I, I would like to extend my sincere. Sincere apologies to John Ramsey, who is, in fact, alive, as many, 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 many people on social media and email reminded me this week. I do like how closely people are listening. I think that's a good sign, right? It it is a good sign, but it's also embarrassing when we say things that are not uh, 100% accurate. I'm going to try to mispronounce Lee Ermey's name again. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this week. Is there, if there's another way to say it, I'll figure it out. <laughs> All right. And I remember the second correction that we were thinking about. There's a second correction? Well, we we were like, what would we like to see in season two of American Crime Story? And it actually, they've been talking about it for months, and we didn't know that. Right. But that the second season of American Crime Story is going to focus on Hurricane Katrina right. and the aftermath. Right. But not a specific story. It looks, sounds like it's going to follow a couple of different characters. We don't know. Maybe it'll be the whole bridge thing. The bridge. That's got to be something. They, said they be... talk about the Superdome yep. and, you know, all that other stuff. Well, we Did will you guys see. read uh, Zytoon What's by that? David Eggers? No? It's really interesting. It's about this one guy who I believe is, I don't know if he's Syrian. Uh, anyway, he, he's he's from either the Middle East or, or North Africa who is living in New Orleans and stuck around during the hurricane. And then sort of what happens with him afterwards, and, and it's incredible. It's by David Eggers, and it's called Zytoon, which is Z-E-I-T-O-U-N. Now, Toby, in between all of your basketball watching and beach volleyball watching and negativity enthusiasm, how do you have time to do all of this reading? Uh, 
I don't know. The the negativity stuff doesn't really take <laughs> up that much time. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of goes on in the background. All right. Well, he doesn't have to work at it. You know, it's not like going to the gym. It just he wakes up and he's yeah. there. Well, speaking of negativity, uh, there was another social media story this week that played out, I think, with a healthy dose of negativity. You mean Toby's sister? No, not Toby's sister. That's a whole <laughs> different story. I'll include that in the outtake so that the audience knows what you're talking about, right. okay? Asia McLean, who, of course, was the defense's star witness in Adnan Syed's PCR hearing. She, of course, is the person who says that she saw Adnan Syed in the library the day that Heyman Lee died. She announced last week that she's writing a book and that it's coming out this June, and it's called Confessions of a Serial Alibi. And social media was had a pretty split and uh, divided reaction on this. Toby, I saw that's something that you commented about. Did the reaction to Asia McLean's book deal surprise you? It didn't surprise me. Because I think there is kind of a knee-jerk negative reaction when somebody who people feel like they have their 15 minutes of fame and then they're going to like cash in by writing a book. I mean, I think that's kind of the knee-jerk reaction for a lot of people. I think this the same day Rachel Doziel. Yeah, Dolezal. Dolezal, yes. however you pronounce it. Yes. Uh, it was the exact same day. And people were much more harsh with her. right. And in both cases, you know, if it's just they're writing nothing, fine. But it seems to me that both of them, and especially Rachel Dolezal, may have kind of interesting things to say. So whether that makes them good writers, I don't know. Well, they certainly have good publicity agents who were able to, well, Rachel Dolezal does anyway. I mean, Asia McLean was not on the Today Show talking about her book, but Rachel Dolezal was. And Laura, you know, we see this come up over and over again, this debate about cashing in, you know, opportunism when it's around a crime or like a a moment of fame. But particularly, I think when there's a crime or a trial involved, it's a very familiar debate. But sometimes there is a story to tell there, too. I mean, where do you land on this particular? Issue. Someone like Asia McLean, who was a pivotal yet sort of somewhat peripheral figure in this story for many, many years, all of a sudden now has a book. Like, what, where do you land on that? I'm not too surprised, I guess. I, I'm curious to see what she has to say. And I'm curious to hear a little bit more about her motivation for writing it, unless I've missed it. Everything I've seen is just sort of announced that it's coming out and it's going to tell her side of the story. But I'm just wondering, is there something, you know, aside from the publicity around the case that has made her feel compelled to do this because she didn't feel that the story was going to be heard in another way? Do you know what I mean? Right. So good for her. I'm not surprised. I mean, this happens all the time. Now, Kevin, the first thing that I thought of, and I'm going to direct this towards you, is, you know, do you, when you hear something like this happen, do you have any concerns Mm -hmm. about sort of the integrity of the legal process? I mean, she was the star witness in a hearing for which the decision has not yet come out. Some of the things that I saw on social media are that, like, you know, how does that look now? I mean, how did, and how yeah. could that, you think the judge cares about that kind of thing? You think it matters? Well, I mean, I think it, we saw this retold in the People versus O.J. Simpson, where there was this eyewitness to O.J. Simpson on the night of the murder getting cut off, you know, at the stop sign. And what did she say? How did you, what did he look like? He's it was O.J. Simpson. It was O.J. Simpson. <laughs> and the reason that they didn't call her is because she was paid for an interview or something like that. So I think that, you know, her testimony is done and whatever, and the, and the, the court right now is considering everything that happened in the PCR hearing. Should Adnan be granted a new trial and Asia's alibi is part of it, 
I don't see them avoiding putting her on the stand and giving that alibi, but it gives the defense something to poke at. Mm-hmm. What, There's saying that, in cross-examination? Well, did you, are you not saying, aren't you, yeah, aren't you just coming forward because you saw an opportunity to make money? Aren't you not profiting off this very story that you're telling in court right. today? That kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. I thought that half of this is rumor because they say it's coming out in June. No, it's true. It, that is such, <laughs> it's, it's on Amazon. That is a crash book. I cannot yeah. believe that a new mom would have the time to write a book. She well, prob- there's probably a ghostwriter yeah. and she's and dictating we've, we've or whatever. We've been offered deals like this. We have been. I mean, let's face it. We've been, I had one, a very strange one a few months ago come my way and offer to, to ghost write, write for a celebrity. To ghostwrite for a an athletic celebrity who wanted a woman writer in our yeah. genre to write the story. And I was just like, I wouldn't know how to do that. I'm just, <laughs> A, you know, I wasn't really my cup of tea anyway, but also like I wouldn't know how to turn a book around in a month by but just by uh, yeah. conducting interviews on the phone like I wouldn't know how to do that yeah and there's I guess the ebooks are going to be available in like two weeks or something like that you know as the, the four of us having been through the publishing machine that's an amazing turnaround maybe time. it's a literal diary maybe it's just yeah. her diary I, you know and we know she keeps one right yeah I mean you're right she, I mean yes she has like so so many great notes yeah but you know Toby's right like you know sometimes it seems distasteful to some people that someone is quote unquote cashing in I, I'm like if they have a story that someone has an interest in then I don't have a problem with that you know if, if you think that it's horrible that she's Asia McLean is writing a book, you can take great pride in the knowledge of knowing you're not going to buy it. Right. And I mean, come on, cereal, there's not something related to cereal that isn't commercial and that the masses are interested in. We know Asia McLean's last name. Right. She's one of the few characters in either seasons of Serial that we can remember their last name. Right. So she's an interesting character. I mean, again, I don't really know how much she has. She had a moment. Is it going to be a little golden book or a big book? We don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know. I didn't see what the, the page count was, but I, I'm really surprised. That is a very fast turnaround time for a book. Anybody else have any final thoughts about Asia McLean's book? I have one quick thought. I was just thinking, you know, this definitely would give them some impeachment material, the prosecution in the case, if there's something in that book that differs from some of the statements that she's given. That's mm-hmm. actually what I was wondering. I was wondering whether or not Adnan's team, you know, Justin Brown, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know if you knew about it. I don't have any inside information on that, but I probably didn't like that idea, right? I mean, you used to work in defense. If you got this information, wouldn't it sort of make you raise an eyebrow or two? Yeah, because even somebody that's telling a credible story can slip up some of their details sometimes in, in a way that they remember things maybe a little bit differently. I mean, I think it just opens the door to maybe a lot more questions about her story when she's testifying. Not that her story is not to be believed, but it, it gives definitely the prosecution in the case, the ability to definitely try to poke more holes in it. It's it's listed as being 288 pages. Right. And dropping on June 7th. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I, I can't imagine 65,000 words on her experience with serial. I mean, I've done this thing where I've like, ghost written for somebody and it's supposed to be about a and you know they want to tell their life story where right. it's like you know uh w- which can be kind of self-indulgent i don't know maybe this uh, my guess would be that it's not going to be 288 pages of what happened in the library and what she thinks of kevin urich right probably going to be a little i grew up on the rough streets or i didn't grow up on the rough streets so Laura, just one follow-up question for you jay wilds gave an interview to the intercept that differed significantly from the testimony he gave at anon's trial so that interview he gave to the intercept is then an impeachable 
piece of evidence for his testimony should Adnan be granted a new trial, correct? If he, if yes. he gets called again as a witness? Yeah. I mean, that was something that I would do a lot. Um, one of the things, you know, I was dealing with a lot of like lower level cases. I always went on social media where people, despite knowing they shouldn't do this, were always <laughs> talking on, you know, non-private pages about cases. And you would always take a screenshot of something if there was a different statement. That's, you know, it's just how many different versions of the same story could they tell? And would you have that, like, would you get to enjoy that aha moment in court where, if this is true, then why on Facebook did you say dot, dot, dot? Yes, although I was always sequestered when it was at court because I was a potential witness. So right. it, was, oh. it was sort of sad. I was, at a, I was at a court case where that happened, where the attorney went to the witness and just said, read him an email back to him and just said, is that your email? <laughs> yes. No further questions. <laughs> yeah. it, like, mic drop, ba-boom! Well, speaking of Serial Season 1, there is another new true crime podcast on the block that a lot of people are comparing to Serial. It's called Someone Knows Something, and it's about a four-decades-old cold case in rural Canada. Now, I had the chance to talk to David Ridgen. He is the creator and host of the show, Someone Knows Something. So first, I want to play my conversation with him, and then afterwards... We've all listened to the podcast. We can share our thoughts about it. For our listeners, if you've never listened to that podcast, this interview is much more about the storytelling. We don't really spoil anything, so I think you'll like it anyway. So let's take a listen to that. I first started by asking David to describe the podcast and why he is doing it. The podcast is called Someone Knows Something. Uh, It's a CBC original true crime production. And CBC wanted me to come back into the building. I I was a staff member here. I left uh, in 2011 and wanted me to develop a podcast where I looked at Canadian cases of murdered or missing people and work with families to look back at cases with the aim to make a positive impact with the podcast. Now, it sounds like your podcast, it almost sounds like it's put together like a film. Did it begin as a documentary film project? No, it didn't. Actually, it was always a podcast idea. It was always investigative in nature. I'm a filmmaker by training, documentary and drama. So I think I just naturally moved towards that kind of a paradigm in the production. And uh, it certainly flows through my writing and even probably in how I approach the arc of the shows. So that's probably why it feels like that. But even some of the subjects that I work with have mentioned that this feels like a film that we're in, not because of the way I'm doing things, but because of the way the evidence is coming out that they never expected. They feel like they're in their own sort of reality show or something. I want to ask you about the Adrian McNaughton case. Now, he was five years old and disappeared on a fishing trip with his dad. And you've mentioned on the show that you are from the same town or you lived in the same small town where the McNaughton family is from. A lot of us live in places where bad things happened a long time ago. What was the draw for you to explore this story? Well, as you say, I grew up in Arm Prior, grew up in the area where McNaughton disappeared. We actually moved to the area a month after he disappeared. My mother was working with his mother shortly thereafter in the nurse, as a nurse in the hospital. So it was something that I grew up with. Uh, it was one of those dark clouds that hung over the town. Almost everybody in the town was involved in the search. Uh, 9,000 people took part in it, including army and volunteers, et cetera, divers. And uh, it's something that people have always asked me about. David, you do all these cases in other places in Canada and the United States. Why don't you come back to your hometown and and do some good here? And the opportunity arose through CBC's uh, podcast uh, idea. And I pitched it and 
I guess the idea was that the, they felt it would be a great way to introduce me as a host, but also it would be a great way to start with a place that I knew so well. Now, the atmosphere of the story and, and the people even seem pretty foreign to me. I mean, I live in a rural place. I'm comfortable with the idea of you know small towns, the way information travels, the way people are, interact with one another. But I'm wondering if you can just describe Arn Pryor a little bit, what makes it singular as a place, what makes the people singular as people? Yeah, Arm Prior is in, a, is in a location in eastern Ontario in what's called the Ottawa Valley. And uh, it has a very distinct character and so do the people that live there. It's a very conservative area. It's one of the first areas that, that elected a, a solely conservative or reform party member at the time. And it's been staunchly pro-gun and, you know, very, very uh, right wing if you wanted to describe people that way. It's also a beautiful place. The people are very generous. Uh, they come from Irish, Scottish, uh, German background, and they still proudly carry almost like a Newfoundland style or maybe even Maine, I'm not sure, a Maine accent, but uh, kind of Eastern Ontario twang is what it's called. So there's kind of an Irish, Scottish thing going on. So it feels like a very different part of Canada, even to Canadians. It's like a little valley almost kind of forgotten by time because it began as a softwood lumber enclave, lots of white pine coming down the river to a mill or a set of mills in Armprior. And uh, the softwood lumber industry basically tanked in the 80s. And since then, it's been small industry that's kind of been supporting the town. But it has a very distinct character. I try to, I kind of hide my accent, but when I go back there, I start to sound like the, one of the locals again. And it's kind of, I kind of like it, actually. I don't know. It's interesting to hear you say that it sounds foreign to you. Well, it does. I mean, I think in the same way that, I don't know if you watched Making a Murder or the Netflix series, but, you know, there are pockets, I think, of rural, not just you know, rural North America, probably rural anywhere, that feel very much like their own place. And I think that that's the sense that I get, you know, listening to the people talk, listening to the descriptions of, you know, the lakes and sort of the culture around outdoor life. And one of the things that really strikes me is the McNaughton family themselves. They are cooperative, I think, with you to a surprising degree in this story. And yet you feel... It sounds like you feel pretty much at ease talking with them and in front of them. And in a recent episode, for instance, you sort of talked about your feelings about psychics being bullshit, I think is exactly what you said. <laughs> what is your relationship like with McNaughton's? And does it help that you're from there? Or do you find that it's an advantage in this story? I think it helps in particular with them. They're a very introverted family. They're very quiet, even amongst themselves. They don't talk about the case. It's not been something that they've used as a way to try to cope with it. That is talking about it. They've done other things, in fact, uh, turned towards uh, religion in some cases, other kinds of religion. And I feel like they're comfortable with me because of the history with my family that they've gone through. My brothers and my sister went to school with their children. My relationship to the family, uh, you know, I'm taking them into places. I'm opening these wounds that they, you know, generally I don't think really want to go to. So there have been flare-ups where things don't necessarily go the way everybody wants to, but... I try to understand the, the subjects, I try to get into their heads and uh, try to be as understanding as I can, keeping in mind that, you know, family members in any of these cases are always suspects right up until the point, you know, where police obviously look elsewhere. But it, it's a difficult situation to be in because you want to find a, try to gather information and understand the case and at the same time be fair to the family. As you know, there have been other broadcast projects, you know, Serial most notably, that did a new look at an old case and it raised... I don't think so much with Serial itself, but certainly in the wake of Serial and then, you know, people who've become fans of the show and then have taken their fandom like a whole step farther and have now become involved in the case themselves as 
citizens, you know, just doing their own investigations, which can get a little ethically gray. Do you have concerns about that with this story? Or is this happening in real time? Or is this something that there's already an outcome and an outsider couldn't venture into that area? I don't know if you're comfortable answering the real time portion of it or not, but I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that. And if you had any of those concerns. Oh, yeah, no, I think it's a great question. I mean, we aim to have real timeness in our production. And I think Serial does the same thing. Incidentally, I'm not a great listener of Serial. I only listened to the first episode and that's on purpose. I didn't want to contaminate my my way of doing things with how someone else has done it. So I, I'm not really that familiar with Serial, believe it or not. But I, I think we're comfortable with, you know, preloading a series. That means getting a few episodes under our belt, waiting for certain things to happen and then having a kind of a, a real timeness so that we, we kind of allow things to happen. And then the next week, it, it was just last week that we did the episode. In this case, we're waiting for a certain event to happen, which will make it real time. To some extent, when you get citizen sleuths involved, which is a sort of a new phenomenon based on the billboards and the databases that are online and, and people that are interested in these cases and getting involved, we're interested in that phenomenon. We want to use it. But we've already experienced, as I know Serial has, cases where people are going out there and accusing people of things and online even uh, getting involved in arguments about the provenance of this or that. And didn't you do this or didn't your father do that? And to some extent, we can't control that, but we can try to mitigate it by, you know, having sort of a, a plan as to how we're going to roll our episodes out. Now, have you been in contact with the uh, local authorities near the, where this case took place? We've been in contact with the former investigators on the case. So basically all the people who did the original investigation that we can reach out to, we have, and we're in the process of doing we have not spoken to the authorities formally that are currently holding the case, just with the belief that all they're going to have to do is look through the documents that we're going to be learning about from the original investigators anyway. To be frank, I think we actually know as much or more than they did anyways at this point, and that's what I know about what's coming down the pipe. But in the future, other seasons, this is a different kind of case with the missing child. The next case will probably, I'm not going to tell your listeners what it might be, but it will be a lot different it will be much more involvement with authorities right off the bat. So when you went into this, I think the first episode or two, it was a very sort of introspective look. You talked a lot about the way that it felt to go kind of go back in time and the you know surroundings of your childhood. And I was wondering when I was first listening what you might be trying to accomplish this story, whether it was just going to be about the impact a case like this has on a community or on the people in it. But it sounds like you might be aiming to or accomplishing something else. Are you trying to solve the case? Well, the aim of someone knows something is to solve the cases. That's the number one thing that we're in this for. And everything else is secondary to some extent, although it may seem that you know, I'm building these rich worlds and we're just talking about impacts on towns and things. Uh, that all just helps engage an audience. And I think to engage an audience is to get information from the audience. So I think that you have to engage people, not entertain necessarily with a you know dog and pony show, but you have to engage an audience in order to find out if someone knows something, to convince somebody to speak, you know, with knowledge they have. You have to be able to engage them in a way that they haven't been engaged before. So, you know, you, you make a rich world in, in which to solve the case. And so I am an investigative person and I know how to do that. And I have very good people working with me. So we're doing investigation, original investigation and coming up with new information all the time in this case. And our aim is to solve these cases. Hmm. Well, I think that when you hear about somebody, especially a child disappearing and really in the circumstances in which he disappeared, you know, he was in the woods, he was near a lake. There are a lot of things that could have happened 
besides, you know, the worst case scenario of somebody abducting him. I know the family has theories. They've talked about their sort of wish and hope that maybe he had been taken by somebody who just really wanted a child, which is a very kind of optimistic way, I think, to frame a, a kidnapping. Yes, very optimistic. <laughs> Did you come into this with a theory? And do you do you have a theory right now? You don't have to share it if it's part of a, in a future episode. But I'm just wondering if, if you have a hunch or a trail that anything that you know might sort of be leading you in a specific direction. First of all, I, I came into this case without any theory. I had read all the stories in the newspapers, which many of them were incorrectly, you know, a lot of factually incorrect uh, reports, which are corrected by talking to the people on the ground and comparing their versions of events to each other. So I didn't come in with anything, but I certainly have formed my own opinions about what's more likely. It's all about probabilities and percentages, bear percentages, abduction percentages. One of the more interesting, uh, and this isn't necessarily my take, but one of the more interesting versions of theory is that Adrian was hit by a car or accidentally killed, and the person just never told anybody and concealed him And then every day thereafter, it would have been exponentially harder for him to have said anything because or her to have said anything because of all the people coming to do the search. You know, something else in their life may be troubling them at the time. They may have had trouble with the law. I can't tell anybody. It seems like a likely scenario, except that it's a very remote area. If you could see it, uh, it's, it's almost inconceivable that somebody could have even been up in that area and to happen along to hit him or whatever. The theories. Some of them hold equal weight in my mind, but there's definitely a few that are much more likely to me. And I'm not going to go over them just because of what I know of what's coming. Right. But I think that there's some of them are equally viable. Actually, I'll tell you, that was to me very intriguing theory as well, because it would have really blown the search area out of the water. I mean, if somebody had theoretically hit him with their car and then taken him and then put him somewhere else, even just a few miles away in the woods, it would have completely the search area would no longer have been you know, totally, relevant. Totally. And the theories are, are many. And of course, there were fingers pointed at the family and, you know, they abducted him themselves and nailed him to the bottom of a boat, etc. And those are, you know, rumors you have to separate from fact. Well, I will tell you from my experience as a true crime author, I don't want to speculate too much, except that it's unlikely they were involved because they're cooperating with you. I mean, that just is... Typically, people who are, you know, recent victims and people who are somehow involved, their inclination is not to invite you into their living rooms no. <laughs> and show you no. everything they no. have. No, not unless you're Ted Bundy or, you know, you're able to act that part without any emotional inflection or whatever, unless you're that kind of a sociopathic person. It's nearly impossible. I will know if these people are lying to me and I know that uh, the family was not involved in this. Well, I really look forward to hearing what happens and following the case as you unpack in your podcast. I can't thank you enough for uh, taking the time to talk to me about it. Oh, well, thank you. And thanks to your listeners, too. All right. So once again, that was David Ridgen, the host of the CBC podcast, Someone Knows Something. That was pretty interesting, right? Yeah. You know, when you do this, you do this kind of reporting where You don't really know where it's going to go. I mean, it really seems like a no-win situation. But you know what is really a no-win situation? It's getting your mailing and shipping done. (laughs) Because... Oh, that was smooth, Kevin. Because Then you can't win? No, because you look at if you go to the post office, it takes up like all your time. And if you do what other people, other small businesses do, you buy one of those postage meters, those are so expensive with these long contracts. Sometimes the ink alone is more expensive than 
doing it the best way, which is to use stamps.com. Wow. Okay. Pause. Guys, yeah. what do you give that transition into the ad? Uh, one out of 10. What do you guys think? It's better than our usual. <laughs> it was so fast. It just happened. It was, and all of a sudden we were in the ad. I, I think, yeah, I, th- I would give it, you know, I think that's a solid seven. Wow. Wow. So he, well, he's always a low grader. Now, with stamps.com, you can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package right from your desk for using your own computer and printer. And you can even get special postage discounts that you can't find at the post office. So if you go right now to stamps.com and use the promo code CRIMEWRITERS, you'll get this special offer. you get a four-week trial of stamps.com plus a $110 bonus offer, which includes postage and a digital scale. I was using the scale today to I saw you. send books. Yeah, I saw you using the scale today. So I was going to send okay, a copy of one of my hardcover books, American Sweepstakes. Plug, yes. Plug, plug. <laughs> Guess how much it costs to, to uh, mail it first class. It's a big book, uh, $8. It's 6 bucks. Okay. But did you know if you use the media mail, the book rate, it's only $3.09. Nice. Uh, and I wouldn't have known that. I would have gone, I'd wrap it up, I would have put like a whole bunch of like stamps on it. Or you wouldn't have thought to tell the post office guys there's a book in here. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So, I mean, that's one of the great advantages. Uh, You can use the scale and so if you got a little small business like us, it's good for doing whatever you need to do for printing out the postage for your invoices or just that correspondence that you always need to do. You don't have to go to the post office because that's really where your valuable time is spent at the post office. Now, don't wait. Go to stamps.com. Before you do anything else, you click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in crime writers one word yeah that's stamps.com enter crime writers if you do that they'll uh, they'll know that you heard about it here all right anything else you want to talk about kevin i can't see it wait a minute <laughs> oh I, I can see it because i am wearing my warby Is parker glasses? glasses yes, yes. <laughs> Warby Parker, bitches. Yes. I love Warby Parker. I have been a Warby Parker consumer. You are a Warby Parker consumer. For a long time. Warby Parker, it's a new concept in you eyewear. You were an early adopter of Warby Parker. I was. You can find glasses that are extremely f- affordable and fashion forward at warbyparker.com. And they have glasses starting at $95. That includes prescription lenses. Mm-hmm. Think about it when you go to the optometrist and you have to go out through the, you know, the gift shop and they're going to charge you a couple hundred bucks. 99 bucks. They also have sunglasses that start at 99 bucks, including polarized lenses available with prescriptions starting at 175. Now, I just got I got my third pair of Warby Parkers. I yeah. got a pair of sunglasses yeah. just like Three weeks ago. You're the Imelda Marcos of Warby Parker glasses at this I, point. Yeah, so I many. love it. I love it. You know why? <laughs> this is why it's really good. It's an online service, but you can pick five pairs of glasses off their website, and they will mail you those frames, and you can keep them for five days and try them all on, take selfies of yourself, and ask anybody on Facebook or anybody who you know has uh, an opinion which ones to get, and then you put the prepaid return ship label and. Just send it back. And no then obligation. get five more. Get five more. Remember the first you time you got glasses, you got like four boxes in a row. I, right? I did. I tried a couple, <laughs> and I finally sent them. But it's, it was so easy. It, w- it was so easy that even Toby could do it. We went to a restaurant uh, where a friend of ours worked once, and she had a. She had this. <laughs> she was standing behind the bar, trying on her Warby Parker frames for all the customers, asking them which ones she should get. You guys should try this if you haven't tried it, Laura and Toby. If either one of you wears glasses, Warby Parker man, they make it super easy. It's the whole thing at home, and it's cheap. Yeah, Laura, you wear glasses, Laura. Don't you? 
I don't wear glasses, but I do need some sunglasses, and I'm really bad at picking out sunglasses that fit or that look good, you know? So I think this could be a good solution for me. I like the giant bug sunglasses you have on your Facebook page myself. Yeah. Yeah. I like those. (laughs) What about you, Toby? Do you wear glasses? Uh, I do sometimes. You should check out Warby Parker, man. You can try them on. It does actually sound... Like a good way of doing it. It's yeah. good. It's and good. look, if, they, if you get your glasses and they come in the mail and they don't fit right, you can take them to any optometrist. If they charge you for the fitting, Warby Parker will refund you. And also, for every pair of glasses sold, Warby Parker distributes a pair of glasses to someone in need. I didn't know that. So we want you to head to warbyparker.com slash crime and order your free home try-on today. So you choose five frames, any that you'd like, and then just mail the frames back. Now, if you want, you choose your favorite pair or pairs and have your prescription added to your order. And boom, risk-free, free shipping all around. Visit warbyparker.com slash crime to begin your free home try-on experience today. That's Warby Parker, W-A-R-B-Y. P A R K E R dot com slash crime. We're both basically completely blind. It's yeah. a problem. Mm. All right. Well, now that we've tortured our audience with those two ads, nice job, Kevin, by the way. But we all know it was torture. Again, thanks to David Ridgen for that conversation. And another note to our listeners now we have posted a link to more about that podcast, Someone Knows Something, on our website, crimewriterson.com. If you haven't listened to it yet, we are now going to talk about that show. So if you are afraid of spoilers, please feel free to fast forward ahead a few minutes and come back to this part of the show after you've gotten the chance to catch up. All right, guys, I should tell you in advance that I did let David know that we'd be talking about his show and that we may deliver some criticism of it, but with love. (laughs) So you can give your honest opinion. I'm curious to know what you think of the podcast. Someone knows something. Laura, I know you've been listening. What do you think? And what do you think of the way that David is telling the story? Well, I like it. It's definitely for me kind of more reminiscent of the first season of Serial where we are following him as kind of the narrator protagonist. And, you know, the first thing that kind of resonated with me about this was, you know, we had a very similar, uh, not similar in the details of how it happened, but there's a missing girl case in the town that I live in back in 1984 that really affected the town. To this day, there are people that won't talk about it. So when I was listening to this podcast, it really had a lot of parallels to that. So I could really identify so no, I, I really like it. I like that we actually have legitimate atmospheric sounds as opposed to Limetown sounds. <laughs> um, and I love their accents. I love their accents too. I love the people. And I, I think that the people do remind me a lot of the people in the, um, the Avery case that we saw in Making a Murder with a sort of unassuming sort of way of being. Toby, what do you think if someone knows something? I like it. Uh, I guess I would probably feel better commenting on it towards the end because... I think it's a little bit like Missing Maura Murray, Mm -hmm. which is that he kind of goes into it without having like a definite solution or or anything like that. So the question is, what happens when you spend this time and putting this effort and then you don't turn up anything Mm -hmm. or what you turn up is as basic as this child wandered away and drowned and they just couldn't find the body at the time. So I, I guess that's that's kind of where I come. I mean, I think he's a skilled journalist. He does a very good job in telling the story. And, you know, I kind of appreciate the craft and the thoughtfulness and things like that. But again, you know, if you were to ask me what what is he really uncovered to this point, it doesn't seem to me like there's been a whole lot. 
Well, one of the things that I found really interesting is the way that he's focused on different aspects of investigation. You know, we've heard from mostly from volunteer investigators so far, but, you know, there was the episode with the artist who created the drawings of what Adrian McNaughton would look like today. You know, of course, there were those great cadaver dog episodes, which I want to talk about in a minute. But first, Kevin, did you agree with me on my um, comment to David that the podcast sounds more like the soundtrack to a documentary film than a yeah. podcast? Yeah. And w- which means that it sounds different than radio. Radio. Mm-hmm. I it mean, does. podcast essentially radio. It does sound different than radio. <clears throat> and, um, you, you know, I, I, I'm with Toby on the sense that I would really want to reserve judgment until it was all done. I, I think right now at this moment in the series, it's, I think the story's kind of petered out because we're kind of waiting mm-hmm. for, you know, he won't say what. I assume it's the thaw. It is the thaw. I checked with him this week to see if that's what yeah. he was talking um, about. You know, I, I don't know if it's a spoiler <laughs> alert, but, yeah. um, but you're right. I mean, it, it, it's very likely that this may not be going anywhere. Which is too bad because he is, I think, the right guy mm-hmm. to be doing this kind of podcast. I would vote this podcast most likely to succeed mm-hmm. when he goes someplace else. I think this is the wrong story for them to have assigned him. I was actually going to gonna ask you that. Is he too close to it? Because there's a lot well, of musing about you know his own experiences. Is, is that the I, problem? Well, you know, I'm just like I'm. I'm afraid that you know that it's going to end up being like one of these college essays where at the end he's going to say, "I went to find." Adrian, but instead I found myself. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, was, I, I think the, the decision to look into a case that was in his hometown was kind of forced. Mm-hmm. Like, it's hard for me to imagine that the most interesting case in Canada that they could have done a podcast was happened to be in this guy's town. I do understand how that could happen, though, because when Kevin and I had an opportunity to write a story for a big national magazine, the first thing that popped into my head was a case that was happening in our town. Yeah. Because it was just like right top of mind. But it sounds like you know, he was talking to CBC that he had some other ideas and they thought, do this one first because it'll ease you into it or, or get the audience. I mean, that's how I took it. I, I think that you know, that's why I feel like I'm really I'm looking forward to seeing what season two is going to be like. Mm-hmm. I mean, there there is a chance that just Adrian died of in an accident of natural causes. Yeah. Or we just may never know. And so, like we said last time, ambiguity doesn't really play well in stories. I mean, I just or it does or it does. And so, yeah, maybe <laughs> part of me is feeling like the whole time. And Toby, you tell me if this is kind of like subconsciously what you're thinking. This story isn't going to end with a a fantastic ending. We're not going to find out that he was kidnapped by a serial killer or something. It's going to be something much more mundane. Yeah, it's either going to be that or it's not going to be anything, Mm -hmm. I think. Or you don't know. We never find. They either find his remains or they don't. Right. And then other than finding, actually finding his 30-year-old remains, it's not like there's some other lead that they're going to track down and try and find him if he's still alive. Maybe he swapped places with Maura Murray, and she's living in Canada, and he's living in uh, the White Mountains of New Hampshire. What do you think, Laura? You know, I'm holding out hope that someone's going to come forward because that does happen in these cases mm-hmm. um, when they are republicized. You know, like this case that I mentioned in Exeter, the case of Tammy Belanger, who was an eight-year-old girl who disappeared here back in 84. Once the main suspect in that case died, the police were really hopeful that now, you know, things would change and people might say something that they wouldn't have said before. So that could be the case in this situation, too, now that it's kind of getting more publicity again. So I'm holding out hope for a satisfying ending. (laughs) I have, you know, one other criticism. And again, I'll say it lovingly because, you know, um, 
Because you do vote this podcast, most I do, likely well, yeah. to succeed, yeah? Yeah. Is, I do think that David is a very good writer, mm-hmm. but I think what he writes for is what is on the page, because that's different than how you you write for radio or television, something to be read aloud, mm-hmm. because there is, seems to be a bit of a, I want to say a disconnect between the writing style and the way that it should be said aloud. I mean, you know, if there's one more like line about he had an aura about him, like a Western gunslinger, we, you know, it's just, just it's not conversational. It seems like it's kind of literary and trying really hard to make the writing good. Mm-hmm. But by doing that, you lose what makes a radio slash podcast episode good, which is the way it, it sounds and the way it flows out loud, right. not just on the page. Well, actually, that's what I wanted to talk about with sound and flow, because if I were working on this show, and I know that like they have people working on the show, but I also know that a lot of it is it's new. So I know that they're like it's building and I agree that it has a lot of good stuff. But I also hear some of the mixing is just a little off for radio. So, for example, you know how in film sometimes they'll do this when they run B-roll where it shows somebody interviewing. They play what they're saying very softly underneath the narrator talking. Mm -hmm. And then they'll like make it loud and then you'll hear a person talking. And In a film, you can get away with repeating the clip. Mm -hmm. In the radio, you can't. So sometimes you'll hear in this show, you'll hear the background, somebody talking softly, the the family on the couch as David's doing his narration. And then he'll come back to the family and you'll hear them say the same thing that you just heard them say under his tape. Mm. So there's a lot of little microformatics Hmm. like that that I think come from making movies that don't quite work for radio, and I, but I, I hear it getting better. I mean, I think... But I don't know who his team is. If his team are CBC I don't radio know. people... I don't know either. Or... But I do think the show took a big turn, and for me, got good, and I really loved listening to it, were the two episodes with the dogs. Now, Laura, oh. you, you listen to those episodes, right? That, I was like, I was sitting in my driveway, and I was like not getting out of my car until it was done on that episode. I'm like, yes, something, you know, I was, it, the suspense was just fantastic in those two episodes. But there was also a lot going on, and we and he wasn't writing for himself to read. He was talking to the people that, you know, he was learning about the dogs, and she was explaining to him how it works, and there was just a lot of interactivity and a lot of great ambient noise with the dogs wearing the bells on their collar running through mm-hmm. like the freezing you heard their paws mm-hmm. crunching yeah I loved the sound effects and also the use of like the little subtle background music at the same time yeah yeah and in other places like the music just doesn't quite seem to fit the show but in those two episodes I thought sounded like what the show could sound like yeah, and I but thought they were really right strong. that's episode five and six and then you get to episode seven which is the first attempt which just kind of seems like okay we've done this there's nothing really happening here and how many times are going to walk out to the well, frozen well, there was the aside lake without the, something happening? But then he did, he, he, I think, knew that. There was the, the, the aside where he went back and revisited the car situation, which was which is interesting. That's a new piece of evidence mm-hmm. that was not in the original police report, that this other car was there, that there was perhaps another family camping there at the time. And that car-like description was so specific. I don't know if I would remember the color and year of a car that I saw 42 years ago. But the one last question I have about someone knows something is what do you guys think about the sense of place, the people that we're hearing from, this idea that if you do a show like this somewhere that's different from where you live, that getting to know that place and hearing the people is interesting in and of itself? I I think it is. Toby, what do you think? I I think that's the best part so far for me. I mean, I I think you you do get a sense of that. It, it seems kind of closed off from sort of mainstream Canada, whatever that is. That's what I like the most about the podcast, I guess. Which, And I think that speaks to him being good at his craft 
My concern is that the underlying story just may not exist. Mm-hmm. So you are you're thinking that if just nothing gets turned up, then we will have gone to this great place for naught. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess it's not for not I, if people enjoy it or whatever. But if you're trying to get to the bottom of a disappearance of a kid 40 years ago and you don't come up with anything, it may be like a glorious failure, but it seems like the objective doesn't get reached unless you have, you know, some kind of broader sort of conclusion you can bring to bear on how some of these things just can't be solved. If he's got some broader point to make about that, maybe that's fine. That's why waiting until the end for this, as opposed to, you know, Serial, which seemed like it always had things going on. It was always going someplace. You know, you you had confidence that in the end there was going to be something. And even though it didn't turn out to be like the bombshell, it did feel like there was something solid and there was stuff to talk about and there was pretty clear delineation of things that may or may not have happened. Whereas this, it seems like it's even hard to formulate what the question is, you know, beyond like what happened to him. Because it seems like he probably drowned. But if he didn't, it's so vague about what the other possibilities are. Mm-hmm. There's no possibility that's put out there other than just what you would think of without any evidence. See, I don't think this case is what this podcast is about or what it should be about, because I, I just don't think this fits what is a really promising narrative with a very talented crew is that it's this introspective look at a five-year-old that just disappeared. There just doesn't seem to feel like there's something nefarious there or that there is a larger mystery than perhaps that he fell into a hole or whatever. But if season two is they're in a city and somebody went down an alley and we don't know what happened to her or there was, you know, we don't we don't know who shot this guy here and he's reopening that kind of a cold case, Mm -hmm. that could be really interesting. I think that's what someone knows something ought to be. I'm not going to fault David. I'm going to fault the CBC for telling him, this. we think this should be your first episode Mm -hmm. because I just don't think this is really the best use of this team's talent. Are you enjoying learning about the details of the forensic investigation? Because I am. I mean, I really think that that's fun. I mean, I think that it reminds me of the show Criminal where they sometimes will take one aspect. You know, they had the guy with the police dog in the one Mm -hmm. episode. They had the sketch artist in an episode. And there are aspects of this show that... I'm really enjoying hearing about what a diver has to do. I love that, you know, I love dogs, obviously, but I loved the dogs episodes because of the whole thing about what those dogs can do is unbelievable. But I like the dog episodes, not because I was amazed that they can smell the particulates because we figured that out. You know, we were explaining that. I liked it because there was some suspense. And I think they're going to find something. They're going to find something. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not intrigued necessarily by the procedure. And I, th- I think that sometimes, you know, talking about how the dive team or at some point it kind of goes on a little too long. Right. But again, I, I'm going to vote this podcast most likely to succeed, right. and I will withhold further judgment until I've heard the rest of the season. Well, the CBC is actively looking for feedback on the show, as they said in a recent episode. Sorry. So you can go on the website and let them know what you think. You can tell them you think it's most likely to succeed. I really hope that David Ridgen sticks with it. I really loved talking to him. He is so bright and really talented. If you look at his Wikipedia page, he's done a lot of very, very interesting documentary and investigative work. And, you know, just his background alone tells me he is the 
right guy to be doing this. And whatever we think about what's happened so far, I, I do think it's worth watching. So I'm going to keep listening. Again, thanks to David Ridgen for that conversation. Uh, let's answer a couple of audience questions now. I have one question for each of us, and I'm hoping you guys are all up to answering one question each. You guys game? Sure. All right. All right, Toby, the first question is for you. This is from a listener named Francis. I am reading The Vaults and love it. When you write a novel like that with a period and setting that you're basically making up, how do you come up with and decide on the details? Now, maybe, Toby, you can just describe The Vaults a little bit and then uh, answer Francis's question. Uh, okay. Well, The Vaults, it takes place in the 1930s in sort of a fictional American city in kind of a fictional America. It's kind of dystopian. And how did I make up the stuff? Without getting too much into the plot, like a lot of it kind of has to do with the plot, sort of the, the, the problems of sort of trying to govern a big city. And then I had some specific things I wanted to do. So in some ways, I kind of designed the city around that. And I wanted to accentuate some things about the difference. I'm going to sound like Bernie Sanders, but the difference between, you know, the, the very wealthy and the very poor during the 30s. Mm-hmm. You know, another thing, sort of another detail that I actually get asked about quite a bit about all three of my books is the names. You know, I grew up outside of Syracuse, which is a very multi-ethnic city. And so when I was sort of creating this fictional city, I um, use a lot of names from different nationalities. And most of those are kind of plumbed from sort of international soccer teams. Wow. So when I was, you know, hurting for a name, I'd go on Google and see what the roster for like the Czech Real Madrid soccer team was and, and find a good first last name and match them up. Wow. So anyway, I hope that kind of answers the question. Yeah, it does. You know, your book, I love, by the way, and I'm not just saying this because I want to help you sell bookstore. Like, I loved that book. I loved it. And uh, I'm sort of waiting to read. It's a trilogy. Right. So I'm waiting to read the other two until like we're on vacation because it's honestly it's so good that I want to like savor it a little bit like on the beach. It's definitely like the kind of read that you want to, you know, it reminds me of like like a China Mayville book. You know, it sort of has that like kind of puts you off balance, but it's like so creative and there's so much detail. And if you haven't read Toby's book, The Vaults, I am going to throw it out there. I think I said this before, but I think Toby is super talented and when about five pages and I put the book down and said to Kevin Toby's a way better writer than either yeah Toby didn't didn't the vaults just wind up on a a best of list this week yeah book riot yeah Yeah. book riot had a sort of 100 best sort of strange and weird books and were you 97 or no I was number five because my name begins with a B oh shit (laughs) okay sorry oh okay but I'll take it (laughs) let's not tell your mom and your sister that's why okay (laughs) all right so Laura this is is from Judy for you. And um, I want you to expand a little bit on this because I think I want to hear your thinking behind the answer. Uh, she would like to know, and I think this is, might have to do with your mention of owning some cookbooks, but what is your favorite cookbook? And I'd like to hear why is it your favorite as well? You know, I'm going to tell you, I don't use as many cookbooks as I used to. I kind of had to downsize a little bit because it was getting a little out of control. But the cookbook that is definitely my favorite is the Bon Appetit Christmas cookbook. And that is because, you know, we have traditional So I have now kind of a repertoire that I do every Christmas. And so we always have the beef roast with the shallot bacon and port wine gravy, which is most delicious. And also the, yeah, the mocha raspberry trifle, another big recipe in that cookbook. So for me, I think it's my favorite just because it's like every year at Christmas, this is sort of my thing. I sit around and I cook and I have these recipes I go back to in this cookbook. And it's got beautiful pictures. You know, you feel very fancy when you're cooking from this cookbook. All right, Kevin, this is from Philip for you. 
I love your impressions, Philip says. I think he's the only one. <laughs> he cannot be serious. No, I love them too, actually. Uh, two questions. Have you ever been an actor or done stand-up comedy? And what do you think is your best impression? <laughs> <laughs> no, I've never done stand-up comedy. Was I ever an actor? I've done little things. I I was in I was in drama, you know, in college. You were in a film I recently. I, yeah, I thought you were in that film. He is. He's in that film, Granite Orpheus. Yeah, yeah. There's like an independent <laughs> film. I've been doing some stuff with. I've done community theater. I learned how to actually sword fight for one. Literally, not literally, metaphorically. Not meta- yeah, not meta- <laughs> I literally learned how to sword fight. Fort fight choreography is really interesting. Because uh, like, you know you have to there's like a position there's A B and C goes like this. This is radio. They can't see. Uh, you. Yeah, you know, <laughs> you know. I live. This is the one which is or no, it's not. It's numbered. And you kind of you know it's like that pirate one. Where you go swoop like that. It's a dance. Yeah. You know the other actor knows to lunge here and you're going to parry this way and but no I haven't done any acting. I if somebody wants me to do some lines on a podcast I think that would be really fun. You actually did some lines on a podcast this week. I did. Yeah. Outside in. For outside in. Yeah, you're going to play a character in outside in. Yeah. So uh, I'd love to be on black tapes. I think it'd be good as like <sighs> like just as ourselves like we could be like hey uh, we had this case and we thought you'd want to know about it. It would be fun to be on black tapes and like be interviewing Alex on our podcast as part of black tapes. If, if, Wow, talk about Inception. There's a snake swallowing itself. <laughs> you think that like, Paul and Terry could uh, maybe see our dreams come true and get us on black tapes? That'd be so fun. The, yeah. <laughs> but favorite impression, I don't have, actually, I don't think any of my impressions are. Hands down, the best impression you do is somebody that most of our listeners won't know, and that is local celebrity Fritz Weatherby. Who sounds very much like Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Kevin, just, do, just do a little bit. Kevin does, the best, Kevin does right. the best Fritz Weatherby of anybody I've ever heard. He used to work with Fritz, so it's it's seasoned. And you know what I could do? I could put a little video of Fritz on our website yeah. so people could see yeah. what you're doing. Can you explain who Fritz Weatherby Fritz is? Fritz Weatherby, he's a legacy broadcaster in New Hampshire. He was, He's probably in his 70s, 70s and uh, he's basically a storyteller. What he does is he has a segment on an evening news magazine where he does you know, Fritz Weatherby's New Hampshire, and he'll talk about some historical thing. Like, you know, it'll either be... Here's where Abraham Lincoln visited Exeter, and um, or it's <laughs> like my church. Yeah, yeah, we have the pew where Lincoln sat. You sat on Lincoln's pew. <laughs> <laughs> so the first time I met Fritz, I was actually sitting down typing, and he was like talking to some people, and they walked over and stopped at my desk. So all of a sudden, I'm involved in the the conversation. I didn't hear the beginning of it, but I did hear him say this: "I once drank a fifth of vodka." And ate an entire box of Fruit Loops. Oh, the next, goodness. the next morning, my vomit was five different colors. <laughs> and that's the Fritzism, is the little voice you, crack when he says numbers. When he numbers. does a number, he goes, "It's six. <laughs> so, like, pause the podcast I'm pausing now the podcast. and yeah. go and check the the video so you can like see. Is that impression not outstanding? It's like so good, right? All right. Yeah. Uh, one more question, and this one is for me, and I'm answering it because I get this question a lot, actually. It's from a listener named Maya. I love the way your voice sounds on the podcast, which, by the way, is hilarious to me because I am not a radio person, but I appreciate the compliment. Thank you. I have a podcast also, and I want to know what kind of microphone do you use? I did do a 
little blog this week about the studio that Kevin and I are building at home because I get this question so often. And uh, basically, my favorite microphone is the very one that we use right here in the radio studio where you record this podcast at NHPR. It is the Electro Voice RE20. It is considered to be what? How would you it's put the, it? It's the industry, industry standard. standard. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, the, it's the definitive microphone. It's definitive. It is. Uh, it's not the most expensive. It's expensive, but it's not the most expensive microphone in the world. It has the perfect compression and it even makes somebody with a squeaky little voice like mine sound like it's got a little more there. But that's just like <laughs> the closer you get, it has like this bass yeah. increase. So the closer you get to the microphone, the, you know, the richer your voice sounds. So just Google EVRE20. Anybody and, want to uh, talk about Bo Bergdahl? <laughs> and that's the end of that. All right. So let's move on now to my favorite part of this podcast, a little thing I like to call the crime of the week. <laughs> How would Fritz say it? The crime of the week. <laughs> That's pretty much how it would go. <laughs> Austrian police, they have egg on their face. Why? Why? Because in the search for a suspected fraudster who allegedly bilked a woman out of more than $50,000, they published a photo of the man the woman identified. But there was one problem. The photo that was published, it was of American actor and producer Peter Mark Jacobson. Who's that? He's best known for being the co-creator of the TV show The Nanny, along with his former wife, Fran Drescher. I'll miss the Sheffield. Yes, not exactly a household name or a household face, but... An actor whose picture is like on IMDb, you know, he's like a a real person. So how did this happen? Well, a police spokesperson said they circulated Jacobson's photo after it was provided by the victim. It turns out the suspect had been using this actor's photo in his own false identification documents because this actor (laughs) must look deceptively similar to him. So here's my question. If you were a criminal using a celebrity's photo to conceal your real identity, What celebrity face do you wish you could use to fool people because you look so much like them? And part two, which celebrity face could you actually use for that? So, Kevin, I'm going to start with you. I always thought Adam Arkin, who's Alan Arkin. Is that your aspirational one? Yeah, that's my aspirational (laughs) one. But but I think uh, people would probably say Ricky Gervais. Yeah, I probably would say that. Not in a good way. All right, Laura, what about you? (laughs) Well, I always like to say that it would be Sandra Bullock, but that's not going to happen. So I think it would be... Like Rhea Perlman, if she straightened her hair. Oh no! <laughs> no, no, way. no! Maybe, the, maybe Kathy Bates. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, Sandra Bullock's actually a good pick for you. Okay, I'll stick with Sandra Bullock then. All right. What, what about you, Toby? Who would you pick? Uh, Dolph Lundgren. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. Now, who was the more realistic pick that you could actually get away with using for your photo? I don't have the foggiest idea. Um, Rutger Hauer. Okay, Rutger, Rutger Hauer. Hauer yes. Yeah, yeah. We'll have a bit of a surprise for you. I did a little poking around today and I found a super creepy Chinese website that actually (laughs) takes a photo of your face and tells you what celebrity (laughs) using facial recognition that you most resemble and I did mine and all of yours. So are you ready to hear the results? Yeah, of course. Okay. All right. According to this very, very creepy website, I, all of the results came up, have the same face as Nicole Kidman. What? Exactly, right? What? Yeah, no. But I will publish the proof on our website (laughs) that this was the results that came out. Laura, your celebrity doppelganger is um, Selena Gomez. Oh, wow. (laughs) From like the Disney Channel? (laughs) Not anymore. Not anymore. She's in GQ this month and she's 23. And uh, Kevin, this algorithm for you came up with Dustin Hoffman. (laughs) 
<laughs> Time for Wapner. Uh, that Dustin Hoffman or the the, the real Dustin the real Hoffman. Dustin yeah, Hoffman. yes. Right. And Tootsie era. Tootsie. Yeah. <laughs> Shut up, Toby. Now, Toby, I'm not kidding, and I'm going to post oh, this photo Jesus. on our website so people can see that this is what this website actually came up with. It shows you nine photos of the celebrities that most resemble you, and it ranks them in order. Yeah. And your photos contained three people. Okay. The first person that it matched you the most closely with was a bunch of photos of this person was Brad Pitt. Nice. <laughs> no, get the fuck out. Yep. That's right. Also match it also matched you with David Beckham and Tom Cruise. What? Oh, oh Jesus. <laughs> this is an awesome sight. I'm gonna bound down the stairs and tell my wife about this. <laughs> Who wants I, to be Brad Pitt tonight? I will post the proof that I do in fact look exactly like Nicole Kidman, that Toby is a dead ringer for Brad Pitt on our website, and that is where we're gonna end it tonight. Uh, Laura Bricker, if people want to find you on Twitter, how can they do that? At Laura Bricker, L-A-R-A-B-R-I-C-K-E-R. And Toby, how can our listeners find you on Twitter, Brad Pitt? Uh, I'm at Toby Ball NH, but much more importantly, my sister yeah. is at Susanna Icon. That's at S-U-S-A-N-N-A-I-K-A-H-N. And Kevin, if our listeners want to tweet with you, how can they do that? I'm kind of the grinder of Twitter right now. I am at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to send me a tweet, you can find me at Reb Lavoie. Our little show is also on Twitter, at Crime Writers On. So send us your questions or comments in a tweet, or send us a voice memo. The directions for how to do that are posted on the blog on our website, crimewriterson.com. While you're there, you can sign up for our newsletter, make a PayPal donation to help keep the podcast running, or use that Amazon link. And if you love the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps new listeners find out about us and keeps us on the iTunes charts. Our theme music was performed by the New York Ska Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. And this show was recorded in Control Room 5 at New Hampshire Public Radio. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Toby, I have a question for you before we get started. Okay. Your sister joined Twitter, and you then retweeted one of her tweets and said, everyone, this is my sister. Like, take her book recommendation, right? Yep. And so I'm like, oh, that's Toby's sister. And I followed her, and then I looked at her Twitter page, and she had one follower, and that was me. Yep. So you did not even follow your own sister right after she joined Twitter? Well, wouldn't it seem kind of sad if, like, (laughs) number first follower was, like, a relative? Are you following no, her? No, it actually seems like way sadder. <laughs> I followed her. When I saw her, when I saw her, I was like, oh, Toby's sister. Okay. Tomorrow, I follow tomorrow her. I'm gonna do a Friday follow and encourage people to follow her. I don't <laughs> think she even wants to tweet. Yeah. But yeah. I thought that was hilarious. <laughs>